0: Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Roundtable podcast, where we interview experts who tackle the tough topics and share strategies and techniques that will help you start, build, and grow your real estate investing business. And now your host, Rob The House Guy.
1: Welcome to the Real Estate Investors Roundtable, where we interview real investors who are active in the market right now today. And today we have two long-term friends of the show here with us. Pretty excited to have attorney Jeff Watson back again. Great to be here. And we have Jenna Hoover. She is a powerhouse in the Pennsylvania market.
2: Thanks for having me Mm -hmm. back.
1: And I am your host, Rob the House Guy, and this is the exact kind of show that I wish I had when I got started over 20 years ago to answer all the questions I had to figure out on my own. So welcome, guys. It's pretty exciting to have you back here. So today we're going to be discussing all the questions that people have about owner financing. Like Jenna had a ton of owner financing questions for us because she wants to really break into that in the Pennsylvania market. And we thought, who better to answer these than Jeff Watson? And... I guess to start out with all this owner financing talk, let's define it. What is owner financing?
3: In my opinion, owner financing is a way of describing a term of a sale of a piece of property where the seller begins to take payments over time as part of the agreement to buy and sell the land. The seller becomes the bank. The payments are made by the buyer to the seller then the seller has to do the appropriate thing with that money. If the house is free and clear, they keep the money. If they got to pay a bank, they got to pay a bank.
1: Gotcha. So basically, it's a term of the sale. In of the sale. So basically, the buyer's buying the house but does not have to qualify with a bank, go get a bank loan, do any of the above. They just start making payments directly to the seller and the seller's cool with that. Yes. Awesome. So, there's different types of seller financing out there. What do you see in your market? For different types between land contracts and lease options and, and so forth, what are you seeing pop up in your market space?
2: Well, that's one of the reasons why I really am glad that you guys had me on the show today because I just had a lot of questions just like I'm sure a lot of people have a lot of questions out there when it comes to this topic. I invest in the two poorest counties in my state. So we have a lot of distressed properties, a lot of motivated sellers but not a lot of people are able to qualify for bank financing. And so in that situation, I wanna try to figure out a solution so that I'm able to help a lot of those people that need to sell and need to buy. And so we hear a lot of, we don't actually hear a lot of owner financing, we hear a lot of rent to own or lease option. And so I was just hoping to learn a little bit more about that and that's why I'm here.
1: I see, that's awesome. So it sounds like you're in a pretty virgin market that's not being overrun by a bunch of investors doing owner financing. And from what I noticed, Jeff, and correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of people use the, the words rent-to-own kind of like Kleenex. Kleenex is a facial tissue, but everyone just says Kleenex. So I believe the rent-to-own has become that exact same scenario where that's just kind of the catch-all for owner financing. Is that what you see?
3: In some ways, yes, but then when you dive into it deeply um, and you start understanding the different nuances, then I, I personally do not like the term rent-to-own because in the eyes of a lot of policymakers and regulators in different states and in Washington, DC, they see that as an area where consumers are exploited. So renting to own is, you know, whether you're doing it on TVs, washing machines, or houses, it's just really not a financially smart way to do it. A better phrase sometimes is lease to own, where the buyer has a lease on the property, and then they also have the option to buy the property, so they got the choice. And if those are structured correctly, they're OK. They're legit. But the, the, one of the big concerns that I see with, with this is there's a lot of shady sellers that are setting up their buyers to fail. But Jen and I were already talking off camera, and she's looking for ways to help her buyers succeed and become homeowners. Right. And seller financing or owner financing, if done right, is a marvelous tool for doing that.
1: Absolutely. I, I would say the one thing that I think is going to trigger most of the lawmakers out there, in my opinion, is I deal a lot in the business-to-business space. I'm an investor dealing with other investors dealing with cash. It's kind of open game. It's kind of like two pro boxers going at it. Versus when you're business-to-consumer in the lease-to-own space, now it's kind of like a pro boxer fighting a kindergartner. And there's going to be more regulations in there. There is. There's a lot <laughs> more
3: regulations. There's this massive piece of stuff called Dodd-Frank and the SAFE Act and TILA. That's all applies in that space.
1: It all applies. Even in a lease-to-own, we're diving into Yes, that. it can apply.
3: It can apply. And so what I've been working on with other High level investors in Washington, D.C., is to simplify those rules for real estate investors to make it easier for us to sell
1: without being regulated like Wells Fargo and Bank of America. Okay, so Jenna has a lot of questions. So let's do this instead of, we could go on and on and on about just different ways and different regulations, but let's customize your perfect scenario and try to make it legal. So In a perfect world, tell us what exactly you're trying to accomplish. You're in a poor community with people that may not be able to obtain bank financing. And what would you like to see happen? And then, Jeff, maybe we can try to build it. You explain the exact things she would need to make that work.
2: Well, a lot, like I said, a lot of people aren't able to get qualified from a traditional bank. So first off, if I'm gonna do any type of owner financing or like you'd said, the the lease options to a potential buyer, I wanna make sure that I'm properly protected. So I wanna make sure, do I give the deed? Do I not give the deed? What down payment do I need? What, you know, what um, type of payments am I gonna require? What percentage of that is actually to go towards the overall um, like if we talk about a rent-to-own or like mm-hmm. you said the lease option scenario, what percentage of that comes to me each month if it's a renting type of setup versus what goes in escrow for their overall down payment? So I just have a lot of questions. So we'll start there. <laughs> okay.
3: Um, there's a lot to pick apart there. So let's begin with this is on a house that you own already. You've got the deed to it, right? Correct. Okay. So you've got a lot of options on how you want how you can choose to sell it. And the one thing you said that has me nervous is if they can't qualify or if they won't qualify with a bank. Because if you start to do more than three to five a year, you're gonna to need to get these people qualified through a RMLL, Red, Real Estate Mortgage Loan Officer. Okay. I can't even remember uh-huh. all the acron- an acronyms anymore. Can't even talk right now. Um, but if you have the deed, you can choose the best way to sell it. There's a lot of different ways to do it. I would tell you, that go ahead and sell it depending upon how good they are with their payment history, their credit score, their employment and how much their down payment is, choosing between either a land contract or typically go ahead and give them the deed and take back a promissory note secured by a mortgage or deed of
1: trust. Okay. Let, let me let me dive into that a little bit here, Jeff. So basically what you're saying is you're you're saying You can do three to five of these per year without, with just doing your own qualifications, without involving a licensed loan originator. Correct. When you say three to five, if she's doing these, because she's a high volume person. I know Jen, she's not just doing one or two of these a year. So if she has one entity, entity A, that has three to five of these done, can she go to entity B and do another three to five? No, because she owns both entities. It tracks, it tracks,
3: they'll trace it back to her. They'll trace it back to a common ownership interest. So the three to five apply to everything that she owns and controls. Now, if she's a minority owner in something else, she can probably get another three to five that way. But if she has control of three different entities, it all is treated as one. Okay, okay. great Thank question. Um, so then the, ne- and Jenna, I know I didn't answer all your questions. So <laughs> tell me where I missed, what did I, where did I leave off?
2: Um, well, how, first off, what are some of the things that i want to look for whenever I go to screen them? Okay. And then what am I gonna require for down payment?
3: The down payment, you want the down payment to be at least 5% of the purchase price. Okay. You're looking for solid employment history. You're looking for good roots to the community. You wanna get a credit report on them. You wanna treat it as if they're applying to you at the First National Bank of Jena to buy your house.
2: Well, I just thought of another yeah. question. Now, do I need to have like ironclad um, requirements so that if I accept somebody here and then I have somebody else that I'm looking at in another year from now, do I, and maybe they're not. Should you
3: be consistent? Sh- yeah, like, yes.
2: And I have, you know, right on the line, I, ha- I have to say yes or no just based on that number, regardless of how I feel.
3: You can take a look at the total picture what's their background like? What's their employment? You know, how much down payment do they have? Things like that to help make that decision. Okay. Okay. But you're looking at them for really one thing, their ability to pay. It doesn't matter who they are, what they look like, how old or young they are and so on. It's their ability to pay. That's the most important thing. And documenting that ability to pay by looking at their credit, by looking at their employment
1: and what they got, what do they have in the bank? All right, before we go any further on it, i just like to try to catch, because I know what yeah. people are thinking as they're watching this. You're talking about this 5% down. On the $100,000 house, it doesn't exist. Well, so Let's use that round number. So $100,000 house, $5,000 down. I know we all like to say non-refundable. Is it truly legal to say non-refundable if you do not perform? If
3: she does the deal where they pay the $5,000 at closing at the title company, they sign a promissory note for $95,000 and she gives them a deed and takes back a mortgage, that five grand was the down payment. It's non-refundable. But if she does it as a rent to own or lease option, then there's a judge that might wanna try and undo that thing, okay? So I try to avoid doing rent to owns and lease options because those people generally shouldn't be buying a house to begin with. They should be renting below their means and saving their money for a down payment. OK, but when they can afford to close and you can close the deal at a title company and you swap a, a note and a mortgage for a deed and take the down payment, it's a, it's a lockdown deal. All right,
1: let me ask a question for Jenna because it's probably not in her mind but should be at this point.
2: <laughs> it's like going so bad
1: <laughs> Because she has high volume, she's doing a lot of deals. And this is probably a wrong assumption. But I'm assuming that you do borrow some money on some houses other than just paying cash for hundreds of houses at a time. So if she has an underlying mortgage on that house, How would that work for her to sell it to somebody else on a note and mortgage?
3: She can't sell it on a note and mortgage if she has an underlying mortgage. She can sell it on a land installment contract. And basically, she's then creating a contract that says, here's the deal, when you get done paying me, I have to give you the deed. But the money that you're paying me is way more than what I need to pay off the loan I have on the house, and she gets to capture the spread. And so what I tell all my sellers in that situation is take the bulk of that down payment and use it to continue to pay down that mortgage that you owe on the house. So that you create a larger spread because when you run the amortization tables, you get richer faster that way.
0: Hey, this is Andy from RealFlow, and our mission is to provide the tools and resources that people need to be a successful real estate investor. So as a listener of our podcast, we want to provide you each week with some of the tools you need on your journey. Check out the show notes to get this week's free gift. Happy investing. In your market, could you describe
1: the eviction process? How long a process is it to do an eviction?
2: Um, I would say it's probably from the time that they don't pay. So we usually give them, it's due on the 1st. The 5th is their last day they can pay. The 6th is they're late, so they have a, a penalty at the 6th. And then I can you know, potentially go and, and file, start the eviction process. A lot of times you hear the excuses, I'll, I'll have it by the 15th, I'll have it. you know. So then usually you're pushing it, and then you don't go to the office for a while. So once you file things, um, we can usually have them out in about 45 days, depending on the whole process, now 45 wait, to 60 days.
1: So depending on the process, if you stay on it, 45 to 60 days. And I'm asking her these questions to come back to ask you the question. The foreclosure process in your town, how long does that take? If a homeowner stops making payments on the property, how long does it take for the bank to repossess the property?
2: It can take a good while. I mean, I've had people, I don't know if they just fall under the radar, but it seems like months and months and months. And that was a question that I was going to ask you. Whenever you go to do these and structure these, do you have them sign deed and lose? Um, and nothing like that do that
3: that would not be that would not be accurate that would uh, probably be title fraud okay fraud on your title insurance policy Um, that's why you need to get a decent enough down payment that's why you need to vet these people on their ability to pay because it's not just the income but it's do they have the character and the history of taking their income and paying their bills
2: and so their monthly payment each month, does 100% just come to me and it doesn't get put into escrow, or does a percentage get put into escrow?
3: You, and When you start doing more than a couple of these, you'll start having all this stuff serviced by independent third-party servicer. There's a company I work with out of South Carolina that does that. Uh, there's another company out of California that does that, and there's a lot of it sprinkled all over the place, but the two that I use, California and South Carolina, they're licensed in all 50 states. Okay. Yeah, so... It's So you're going to want to use an independent servicer that's going to keep track of those things. The payments coming in, making sure the taxes, the insurance are paid, and communicating with the with the buyer, all that
1: process. Okay. That gets you out of the way so you can go on and do your next deal.
2: Okay.
1: One of our prior guests, uh, Angelo, the other attorney that was yes. on with you, today, he has a service that does that as well, Avalon. Yeah. So shameless plug for one of our past guests that donated some time. So with her situation with talking about the foreclosure versus the... Uh, the eviction process, how would you structure it so she could treat the, the removal of the non-payer as an eviction and not as a foreclosure?
3: The, te- the best way to do that would be using a land installment contract. That's my second favorite tool for in a seller financing category. Under a land installment contract, when they don't pay, it's typically treated as an eviction with a couple of extra periods of time for them to cure it until they've paid for like five years or got 20% equity or more. Then it, becomes an ev- then it becomes a foreclosure process. But if I've got 20% equity and the house has gone up in value and they stop paying, I'm gonna be okay. Yeah, I'll have to go through a foreclosure process, but I'm gonna get back a house that I can fix back up again and sell again for even more money. It's not the end of the world. Do you have to
2: give any of those payments back?
3: No, none, none. If you know, for anybody that's ever had a car repossessed, when the car when the bank repossessed the car, did the bank give back any of the payments you made? No. <laughs> that's a great example. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. So, how about repairs? Are you planning on handling repairs on any of these homes that you're selling on owner financing, like you would a rental property? Or are you hoping that they would make the repairs?
2: Well, that was going to be a question that I had for Jeff, but he kind of cleared up that I'm not doing a rent-to-own type of scenario. So, if we're doing a um, you know, if we're doing like a, an owner financing type of setup, if I had a mortgage with a bank, the bank is gonna come fix my house for me, just like right. if I'm gonna be portraying the bank in this scenario, I guess I would assume that that would be their responsibility Correct. to take care of
3: that. The First National Bank of Jenna does not send out a handyman to fix the door that got broken.
1: So one stumble that I may see in Jenna's plan here, and I'm just gonna ask it for her, and because you're a attorney, so clearly you're an accountant as well, So when you're, she buys a house for $50,000. Sells it for 100,000 on owner financing, because on owner financing, you typically get a premium for the property, as long as it's still within market value. So how is that viewed by the IRS? Are you getting hit for capital gains on money you've never received? Great question. Love
3: it, and I know the answer. (laughs) Um, When the transaction is sold that way, and it takes more than a year, it then is taxed in the eyes of the IRS as an installment sale. So her $50,000 capital gain would be broken down over the number of years that the payments are made to her. So it's not one big hit. And the interest that she makes on every payment is also then taxed as interest income in the year that she receives it. So she's getting two different income streams, long-term capital gain paid out over time, taxed at one rate, interest income taxed at a similar low rate compared to ordinary income. So it's a really good strategy, and it's taxed very favorably. But she loses the depreciation. She Well, once title transfers, yeah. she loses the depreciation. And I would say this, when I sell a house on land installment contract or with a deed take back a note in the mortgage, I don't care about depreciation anymore because now I'm the bank. I care about my interest and my payments.
1: All of this could be just a moot point if it was all done inside your retirement account, which we could all talk about another day. So, Jenna, what hiccups are you seeing so far in this whole process that he's talking about? Where do you see a pitfall that that could hinder your business from moving forward?
2: I just think that just trying to make it into easy terms when you're talking to a buyer or a seller, just making sure that they are completely comfortable and understanding things. I wanna make sure that I'm properly protected with the right contracts, the right wording, you know, something that you had said about I'm only allowed to do three to five of these a year and that's something that I didn't know until now. Just making sure that I'm not you know, a red flag or a mm-hmm. you know, flashing light of some sort with any any institution that's gonna see that I'm doing something as illegal or fraudulent.
3: Yeah, I agree with you completely. In fact, you said one thing I wanna be clear to make sure I understood you. When you said easy terms as in easy to understand, going back to keeping it super simple so Mm -hmm. that everybody, so no confused minds say no. Don't think easy terms as in easy terms to buy. You don't wanna be giving away your houses. Correct you want to make sure that well-qualified buyers are
1: competing to get them from you.
3: Mm -hmm. That's what you're looking
1: for. So um, for old-timers like me that have gone through the banking crash, I don't like to call it a real estate crash, I like to call it a banking crash. because The banking crash, where we used to have the Wild West, where they were doing the two-year fix and going adjustable balloon payments, everything else. Now diving into the Dodd-Frank of modern day, For Jenna, if she's going to do a rate and term with someone, I doubt that she wants to take payments for the next 30 years. She would like eventually for them to cash out in three to five years. How do you get into being allowed to do balloons in today's climate?
3: Under Dodd-Frank, she's allowed to sell one house per year with a balloon 60 months or more further out. I'm what? trying to change that, dude. Okay. <laughs> Been working on it for a few years. We're Man. making progress. Um now, I don't know about anybody else, but I like slow and steady winning the race. I don't mind collecting payments for the next 30 years, particularly if they're in my IRA. Right. Okay. That that kind of that's like music to my soul.
1: Well. You know, statistics. Not we scared you. Statistically, every five to seven years, people either sell, refinance, or default. So you're really not a thirty-year plan. You're not going to be the bank of Jenna for the next thirty years. Then yeah. there's a. Then I have a. I
3: have a very dear friend and client. She lives in Dallas, Texas, and she and her husband are some of the most brilliant real estate investors I represent. She has ways of selling parts of those notes and getting a chunk up front
1: with more payments later in the future.
0: Brilliant
3: strategy.
1: So what are the downfalls if Bank of Jenna takes this and sells her note? she takes it like, I'm the buyer. I'm buying this thing. I'm two years into it. And she sells something. Is there a pitfall to that? There is.
3: There is. And it really comes down to how good of a job did Jenna do two years earlier when she was selling the house and documenting that borrower's ability to pay? Did she get a good credit report? Did she get a good employment background? Did she really verify the ability to pay? How well written was that note? Did the deed of trust or mortgage get timely recorded? All of that stuff is what we call the collateral file that goes with that. And The better job that she does with the bigger down payment and the better debt to income ratio and all that stuff makes that note more valuable because it's not just the interest rate and it's not just how long they're paying it, but it's the collateral and the borrower that make the whole package. And in today's environment with where we think the Fed is going with rates, if Jenna does this job and does it right, like I know she will, she's creating a really nice asset. Because if she's selling at higher than market rate terms on an interest rate, there are yield hungry investors that will kill to get those things.
2: Oh, that was. A, I have a question now. <laughs> so, when we talk about the interest rate, now, how am I establishing what what interest rate am I going exactly? What the banks are, or is no, there? A you're cert- going to be above
3: that. You're going to okay. be probably three to four percent higher than a bank. Oh, okay. So, I would not be going double digits on your rates, but I would be very comfortable with today's that the day we're shooting this. I'd be very comfortable with charging anywhere from eight and a half to nine point nine percent. Wow,
1: not bad.
2: Don't be coming to my bank, huh?
1: <laughs> <laughs> all right. We can literally talk about this all day. There's, there's so many avenues. in Jeff, I think it's amazing what you're doing, being proactive and working with the lawmakers to try to clean this up for all of us. Because honestly, Jenna's a good person. She just wants to give homeowners an opportunity to sell to her to get out for cash and then give new homeowners the opportunity to buy when they can't get qualification from a bank. So I think that's great that you're trying to open the eyes to everybody that nobody's a bad person here. We're just trying to create our own little economy.
3: Right. (laughs) And I'm going to just give a shout out to Congressman Roger Williams from Texas and Congressman Vincente Gonzalez from Texas. One a Republican, one a Democrat. They're aligned on this. They have the same goal. They want constituents that live in Texas and everywhere else to be able to buy houses. And they see seller financing and owner financing as a way for the unbankables to be able to own. The
1: unbankables. Let's go ahead and uh, let's go ahead and coin that. So, okay, real quick, as a takeaway, what takeaway did you get from our time here today with Jeff?
2: Uh, I took a whole lot. Just just knowing some of the the legal terms of things, making sure that you know, I was just thinking, okay, let's just do some rent to own in my area. Let's require this. I can do as many as I want. Now I know that the terms are going to have to be different. There's just a whole lot of legal work that has to be done.
3: Do it right and you'll make a lot more money.
2: Yeah, and I, I just want to make sure that I'm able to give people an opportunity. Like you talked about the un- unbankables. It's There's a lot of people that want to buy the houses that we finished, but there's not a whole lot of people that are able to qualify for those well, bank loans. I'm going to
3: dive in right there because you've got a lot of contractors that work for you and they probably haven't been in business for three to five years and they probably don't have pristine tax records and they don't have proof. And so the bank won't bank them. But you know they make a good money. You know they do a good job. You know that they're going to be there for a while. That's my target unbankable audience. Mm-hmm.
1: So is this all nationwide that you're talking about for these five deals? Yes. OK, so it's not just in her market. She can't because a lot of investors who do multiple markets.
3: A lot of investors do multiple markets. Yeah, it's per, per entity controlled by a particular investor. It's three to five a year.
1: Gotcha. I would love to dive in deeper. I, I know both of you have, as being friends of the show, we might have to have just a Dodd-Frank show one time. <laughs>
3: <laughs> let's, let's do that when the bill clears the House and the Senate and gets signed by the President. I'm, I'm gonna be on cloud 29 when that happens.
1: Okay, awesome. So hopefully we're all still alive by then. It'll happen, <laughs> I, It'll I happen. believe it. With a guy like you behind it, I believe it will. It'll happen. So guys, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for sharing all that you've shared with our viewers. I know it just really opens my eyes every time I have knowledgeable people on the show that are out there setting the world on fire and um, at the same time keeping them out of the the poor house and out of the, the bad eyes of the law. So you've been watching the Real Estate Investors Roundtable. I'm your host, Rob the House Guy. And remember, nothing works unless you do.
0: This episode is brought to you by RealFlow, the smart way to invest in real estate. All the tools you need to automate lead generation and marketing. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to leave us a review and subscribe, and you can get a copy of the transcript in the show notes below. Happy investing.